month. I'm excited to be here. Um, <laughs> when you have seven kids, you can survive off of nothing. <laughs> you know, I was in I was in England last month, and we did. Uh, I flew in, got off the plane, didn't sleep on the plane, took a train all the way from London to North England, and then I turned right around and jumped right in the car, went to Sunderland, that's where Smith Wigglesworth got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and did a prophetic conference there, meeting that night. Got back, I think we ate gyros there, because that was the only thing, gyros were the only thing open at that time when the meeting stopped. So I ate, by the time we got back to North England, it was uh, around two in the morning. I winded down for about an hour and a half, two hours, I went to bed around four, woke up, started meeting Saturday morning at 9 a.m. and preached all day until two o'clock at night was when I stopped praying for people. And so I have figured out some formula of surviving off of three to four hours of sleep. Um, I think kids have done that very well to help me. Huh? And lattes. Yes. You know, when, when they met me, when Jason and them met me in Florida, it was, I would go, they would bring me into these conferences. It started, Michael Koulianis' dad reached out and said, hey, we'd love for you to just come to these conferences and just pray for everything that moves. And I said, okay. And so, so I came in to pray, no badges, no nothing. They just, you know, they just said pray for people. And so... I would bring my buddy Aaron with me and I'd pray for about four to 700 people a day. <laughs> and we'd go 16 hours a day. <laughs> we just all day, just pray for people. I love it. I love it. So, you know, I just spoke in Germany at a school and I made the comment to him. I said, um, a guy I know, Ben Fitzgerald was supposed to preach that morning and he got a little sick. So I walked in and Somebody came to me and said, Ben said, you're preaching this morning. I was like, I am. Okay, let's do this. And I said, I have one request. I said, what? I said, I pray for everyone. They said, everyone. I said, I need five minutes with everyone. <laughs> They're like, okay, we'll try to make that happen. I was like, no, there's no making it happen. This is, this is the agreement right here. I get to pray for everyone. Because I want everyone to have an opportunity. You know, after... After one meeting I preached, I think it was, I went 12 hours that day. It was another time. And um, it was 1.30 in the morning and my German interpreter just looked at me. He's half my age. He goes, I, I can't do this. I've got to go to bed. How, how are you doing this? I said, it's Holy Spirit. So he went to bed and it's 1.30 in the morning and it's the last guy, the last guy. And he's telling me a story and I'm dozing off. I'm losing parts of his story. And all of a sudden, Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, his story is important to me. And I was like, okay. I was like, hey, can you just start over? Because <laughs> it's important. These aren't, when I go in, I pray for somebody and they die, I take it very serious. I get, I get asked to, 
Luckily, I don't get asked as much as I used to. I'm really, really bad with social media now. I used to be really good with it. I used to love it. And then you go viral on it and all this other stuff. And then you just really don't care about it. <laughs> and I used to get 300 messages a day of sick people all around the country. I'll pay for you to come pray for me. Can you please, I'll buy your flight. Can you just come to the hospital? Can you? And uh, I, you know, I never ask for anything. I never look for anything. Many times I just jump in the car. My son Asher and I last year, we, we, we actually visited our friends from Oklahoma on that trip, but it was a woman that, that I had met over Facebook. Um, she, she had messaged me, her daughter was bipolar on medication, having night tears every night. I pray for her, she was instantly healed, never had another night terror. Ter they flushed the bipolar medication down the toilet. She's completely healed. So she reached out again and she had messaged me. Her daughter had, uh, was a cowgirl, had fallen off of a horse in a feedlot. They found her with her foot stuck in the stirrup and she bashed her head against something. And so she was in a coma. They brought her to the hospital. There wasn't any, any brain activity. They had already cut a hole in her skull cap to release pressure from the brain. And the fluid built up. And she messaged me. She said, my, my daughter, my, this, is, this is what happened. Can you pray? And I said, I'm going to send you an audio clip, and I want you to play it over her. And when she did, she instantly came out of the coma. Just like that. Boom. Out of the coma. She ended up going. She sent me a picture that evening. They hadn't even put anything to cover the hole in her skull cap. And she's playing foosball <laughs> at the hospital. They just have her scalp just drip, dripped over. And, and so, so that mom had messaged me and she said, Hey, I, I have hip dysplasia. I have no, pretty much all of the joint had dis deteriorated in her socket. And so she had for six months been scheduled where they were going to scrape the arthritis off of her hip bone, her joint, the socket and everything like that. And, and so she messaged me and she said, would you, would you pray for the, for my hip? My wife was preaching at a women's conference last year. And so I said, I'll do better than that. I'll come up to, or I'll come up and pray for you. She goes, you'll, you'll drive all the way from Nashville to the North Dakota to the Canadian border to pray for me. I said, yep, I'll jump in the car, come pray for you. She goes, well, I have the surgery Tuesday. I said, well, my wife's at a conference. She's preaching right now. I said, I'll have to try to figure this out. She goes, but I have to be there to prep for the surgery. So it's pretty much this situation either I choose the surgery or I choose for you to come and pray she goes I've been this has been set up for six months I said well you have the choice I'll jump in the car Sunday and I'll start driving and I'll pray for you but if you want if you have to go ahead with the surgery that's okay she calls me she messaged me back she said I canceled the surgery I said okay I said well I'm jumping in the car as soon as my wife gets home so I threw my son Asher, we drove all the way up, 
took us like two days to get there. Chicago was just backed up. It was just a mess driving up. And so we get there. Her whole family, even her daughter that I prayed for, both daughters that had gotten healed are there. Her daughter that had fallen off the horse. She said, for months and months, I played the voice messages that you sent my mom. It was just, oh, just wrecked me. She just cried and fell in my arms. And, and so met him in an old church in North Dakota. It was just us and her family. And um, right there at the table, I looked and I said, I command the leg to grow in the name of Jesus and the socket to repair. And all the pain left instantly. So she gets up, but she still got that motion. Like there's no, you know, hip ball socket there. Well, I said, well, I'm not worried about that. God will take care of that. Well, that night or the next day as I'm driving to South Dakota and then Oklahoma, she messages me and she said, I'm completely 100% healed today. Yeah, 100% healed. So these aren't just testimonies to me. These are people I know. You know, it's, I had just... There was a prominent woman in, in Nashville. This, I was invited to her house to pray for her, this big mansion. Many politicians had given their lives to Jesus in her living room. She was well known. She was a little evangelist in our city and she was dying. Her daughter reached out. So I went and I sat on their couch, and sat beside her and talked to her mom, prayed for her. Just, okay, Lord, heal her. Just command all the sickness to go. And three weeks later, she passed away. And man, when I got word about that, I was in a parking lot just bawling like a baby. It's like, oh, this makes me so mad. I need to look more like Jesus. That's my theology. Tell me one person that's in this room, if you had sickness and Jesus was in this room, who Jesus would look at and say, it's just not your timing. (laughs) Name one person in the Bible where Jesus walking on the street looked at a person and said, "Mm, I'll come back next year. It says all who came to him were healed. All, not some, all. That's my theology right there. All who came to Jesus were healed. So, No one ever came to Jesus and asked for healing who wasn't healed. (laughs) If you can find that in the Bible, please show it to me. Because I'd love to see it because it's not there. It's not there. So when someone doesn't get healed and I pray for them, I don't try to build theology around that moment. I just go and run away with Jesus a little bit more. A little bit more. Listen, I've gone and held hands with people in hospice as they're dying. I've, I've probably seen more death than most of the people in this room combined. That's just the reality. People are like, oh, I went to get the healing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds glamorous, doesn't it? Yeah. But I've seen so many miracles. I've seen the dead raised. I've Every now and then I'll get a piece of paper. It'll be from somebody. It'll be from a lawyer that they've notarized a will that if 
their client dies, I have first right to the body to raise them from the dead. <laughs> Imagine, yeah, I just had a woman the other day, she, she met with me, she just said, I, I put, it, put it in my will that if I am to pass away, that you have first right to come to the body and lay hands on it and raise it from the dead. And I have it notarized and my lawyers looked at it. The hospital can't say anything. So if people want you to come and pray for them to be raised from the dead, must be because you actually believe something. <laughs> and so this woman dies, I'm sitting in my car, I get word and I'm just in tears. A leader from Nashville, she contacts me and she's talking to me and you know, she's trying to, I don't know, make me feel better at the moment. I, I was just, oh. I said, Lord, the next person that messages me and instantly a person messaged me. It's the next person I'm going. It was a mom. She had just buried her son two weeks earlier. She buried one five years earlier. And the other two that are alive had the same disease, muscular dystrophy. And they were all, all her sons were destined to die by a certain age. So I walk into the house. Imagine she had just buried one two weeks earlier. And here I am now in this house with them. It was, you could feel the weight. And I prayed for these boys. They were only like 11, 10, 11, 12. They're just within the 12 to 10 range. And the two that were left. And man, my heart. I don't want to be, I don't want to get so callous in my heart that I'm not sensitive to those moments. And so I prayed for them. Nothing, nothing happened yet. And I was still frustrated. I was like, Lord, like, like I'd just seen 600 people that I personally laid hands on the year before healed. I remember I walked into a church and as I'm walking to this church, I get a text from our leaders in Denmark that we're, we're buying a boarding school and we're starting a, a two-year college there in Denmark for ministry. And, and they messaged me and it was their 12-year-old their son that he's, you know, I'm like his uncle. And, and he's in the hospital. He looked like he lost like 10 pounds. He didn't have 10 pounds to give. And he's in the ICU and they don't know what's wrong. And she's like, I don't, I don't know what's wrong with him. We brought him to the hospital, just pray for him. He asked for two things, that we would take him to the hospital and that Brent would pray for him. And so I sent him a message and she said, as I'm walking in the church, she said, he's been sitting there playing the message over and over and over and over. And when I walked in that church, I'd already, I'd already called my wife. I was like, I don't know how it's supposed to, I don't know how it's going down, but I'm preaching this weekend. I'm supposed to preach at this other place next weekend, but I might jump on a flight on Tuesday, fly to Denmark, pray for him and come back Thursday. She was like, okay. This is my wife's like, okay, if you can do it, do it. And so I'm trying to work this out in my head. How am I going to do this? So when I walk into the church, I am mad. And I get up there to preach and I turn around, I look at the whole crowd and I say, here's the deal. No one that leaves this place sick. <laughs> That's what I said. No one leaves this place sick. 
when you, when you see a kid that's three years old with club feet getting run for the first time. And he doesn't have his, his shoes on, his braces on his feet. And the well, three, four-year-old kid's weeping because he can walk for the first time. A woman with MS jumping up and down because her MS is gone. This is healing after healing after healing. I think we had like 20 or 30 miracles in that group that night. I was just mad. I put a, put a demand on the anointing of God that this is the deal. Everyone's healed. So coming out of that and now I'm hitting a couple roadblocks. I'm like, well, what's going on here? And I got so frustrated and I, I got home and my wife was like, how did it go? And I was like, well, you know, they, the mom texted me and said she, her son's feet are changing colors and they're starting to turn back to normal, but that wasn't enough for me. I was still upset. So my wife, she's like, hey, remember when we, you were doing ministry in Miami and you had driven all, we, we went as a family to Miami. I said, yeah. She said, remember that family we went to go visit in the keys like my wife I'm, I, I didn't want to go to the keys I had just preached for like four days in Miami and I was so tired you know we had the whole family with us which all all six of us were in the car at that point you know with with my wife and I all six kids and we we're all crammed in a little Airbnb in Hollywood Florida and you know, everybody, everybody's like, man, you get to go to the really cool places and all this stuff. And my wife, my wife's just so funny. She, she knew, I just visited five countries and she knew exactly because her mom had made the comment like, you know, he gets to travel all over the world, all these beautiful, my wife was like, no, you don't understand. All he saw was what he saw through the window of his car. That's all I saw. You know, I'm, Hell, I'm writing a book with a guy who, this guy, he does, writes books for people at Bethel and stuff. And we're on a train in England and he's asking me questions about the book he's writing for me. And he's writing down the chapters and stuff. And we're working on this. And he, he looks out the window and he says, oh, look at the castle on the cliff right there. Isn't that beautiful? It, it, make sure you don't miss these moments. And I'm just like, what? And I totally missed a castle on a cliff, you know, overseeing the ocean. And I, like, I don't get to see any of that. That's not why I'm there. So my wife knows, I see everything from the window of a car, you know, and here I am in Miami and my wife, it's the last day. And my wife's like, let's drive to the Keys and meet this homeschool family that travels in an RV. And I'm like, what? She's like, it's just like a two and a half hour drive each way. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I really don't want to do this. So we jump in the car. We drive all the way to the Keys. It, apparently, traffic was terrible for, for some reason. So it took us five and a half hours each way. So we get down there. I spent 45 minutes with these people. I don't know them. My wife knows them. Apparently, they're very popular on Instagram and all this other stuff. And, and my wife's like ministering, and she's just like being gracious and full of mercy. And I'm just like thinking in the back of my head, I've got to drive from the most southern 
part of this country back to Nashville. And it just took us five and a half hours and it's 16 hour drive from Miami to turn around in two days and I'm going to Detroit. So I get to go from the most southern part of the country all the way to the almost the most northern part of the country <laughs> within a week. So that's all I'm thinking. And so we meet this family. They had five kids. She was pregnant and all this stuff. And so two years goes by. And this last uh, a couple months ago, I'm walking in the house. And my mom, uh, my, my wife, Cessna, was like, you remember, remember Nicole? And her husband said, yeah. And she goes, I haven't been on social media. And I missed all her messages. She has five tumors in her body. She's like 36 years old. And she's paralyzed. And I was like, are you kidding me? She was like, yeah. And I said, well, are they in the Keys? Where are they? And she goes, no, they're at his parents' house in, in Delaware. She said, and I looked at my wife, I said, tell her I'll get in the car. She goes, when are you leaving? I said, I'll, I'm going tomorrow. I'll jump in the car. And so she messaged Nicole and she said, my husband said he's coming. She goes, what do you mean he's coming? He's, he's getting in the car tomorrow. <laughs> he's driving to Delaware to pray for you. She was like, you're kidding. So I jump in the car, I drive all the way to Delaware pull up at their house. I think the dad wasn't necessarily the best area in Delaware. And the dad thought I was probably like someone about to repossess something. And so he was like, who are you? Why are you here? I said, I'm here to pray. Because what do you mean? And so his son comes out the door and he goes, no, 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 it's, it's fine, Pops, it's fine. He's this guy, I met him in my, when, we, when he was in Miami in the Keys. And so he grabs me and he just falls on me in the middle of his front yard, weeping and crying. He goes, I can't believe you just drove all the way to Delaware. I have a church just 15 miles down the road. Nobody's came to our house. You just drove all the way from Nashville. I said, yeah, I'm here to pray. And I went in there in this room in the back of the house so the five kids and the baby are in the other room running around and the mom's dying in the bedroom with tumors all on her body. She can't move her legs. She was a runner. She was athletic. He's athletic and she can't move. So I sit beside her bed for five hours and I laugh and I cry and I hold her hand and I pray. The husband cries. He goes, I, I've never seen anything like this. God's moving in her life. I didn't see everything I wanted to see in that moment, but I saw God moving and went out of obedience. I remember sitting with Dan Muller one time and I said, Dan, I the last eight people with cancer I pray for died. <laughs> I said, I don't want to pray for anybody with cancer again. And he looks at me and he says, buddy, 
I've had to do their eulogies. I had to speak at their funerals. I said, I'm just done. I don't want to pray for anybody with cancer. The next week, I'm sitting by a guy in church. And the pastor says, does anybody got pain in their body? Lift their hands or need healing. The guy beside me lifts up his hands, older guy. I reach over, I pray for him. The next Monday, or the next day he goes in to have his scans because he's got stage four leukemia. And it's gone. It's completely left his body. No bare, bone marrow transfusions and all this other stuff. He didn't tell me for six years. I was doing a FaceTime, a Facebook Live, and all of a sudden this guy jumps on there. I'm like, hey, Paul, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in like six years. Oh, I'm doing good. This guy laid hands on me five, six years ago. I was healed of stage four leukemia. I was like, I got it. As soon as I got off the Facebook Live, I was like, why didn't you tell me six years ago when I didn't want to pray for anybody anymore? <laughs> like, I could have used that information. That would have kind of built my faith a little bit. <laughs> I went to, uh, I was invited to go up to Evansville, Indiana to pray for a woman that was dying. So I go up there. I'm on the elevator going up to the ICU floor. So I'm taking the elevator up. The father tells me she's not going to be healed. I said, why am I here? He says, you'll see. And then he told me, he said, she doesn't want to be healed. She just wants, she's just done. She just wants to be with me. I said, okay. So I go into the room. It's one of those ICU corner rooms where it's all glass. And so I walk in there. I walk up to the bed, sit. I've never met this girl my entire life. I sit beside the bed. Her family's there to see me pray for her. They're hoping that she's going to get up out of that bed, walk out of that room. And I go over there, I hold her hand. I kiss her on the forehead. And I just talk about Jesus. Just, just minister to her heart. And I remember... You know, the family's like waiting for this big moment, but there wasn't a big moment. She just wanted peace. She didn't want to fight. She didn't want to stand. She just wanted to go home. And I understood that. I respect that. And I, I get up, I turn around, and when I turn around, the entire room is filled with white coats. All these doctors had come in the room to see the faith healer raise a woman from the bed. And I couldn't believe it. There was like six of them. And I turn around, and they're all standing there. And I, as soon as I see them, the father says, this is why you are here. So what do you want me to do? He says, start on the right and move through. And I did. I started, I walked right up to him. I said, can I pray for you? I began to prophesy. I began to minister to these doctors. They're just weeping and crying. And I'm just going from one to another to another. And I get to the end of the six. And there's this woman that is really nice, dressed with a pantsuit on. And she's standing there. And I go to lay hands on her. And I said, you want the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing. 
There's no context to this besides I touch her and the, I hear the Lord say she wants the Holy Spirit. I said, you want the Holy Spirit? I said, be filled with the Holy Spirit. She goes flying across the room, hit by the power of God, hits the wall, slides down, and when her butt hits the floor, she goes, and she's just, all the doctors start clearing the room. They're just, what's that? And they all clear the room. She gets off the floor, grabs me by the arm, yanks me out into the hallway. She goes, do you know who I am? I said, you asked for the Holy Spirit. She goes, no, no, I asked two weeks ago in church, not at the hospital. I said, but you asked and he gave it to you. She goes, oh my goodness. I'm the director of this hospital. <laughs> and those were all my subordinates and they just saw me. Got, I just got baptized in the Holy Spirit in front of them. I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> and I said, well, why do you need the Holy Spirit? Why are you crying out for him? She began to tear up. She said, I have a ministry. I take a couple of girls with me. We go to strip clubs. And we actually pay for the strippers to come off the poles. And we preach the gospel to them. And when they get saved, I have worked it out where I can get a grant for them for a free ride education to become a nurse. So they come to work at the hospital. See, I mean, what's gonna make a stripper leave a strip pole when she's making $1,000 a night? Where is she going to make that type of money? She's not going to go work at McDonald's. She's not going to go work at Walmart. You better have something else that could pull her out of that lifestyle. And this woman had figured a way. I was like, yeah, you need Holy Spirit for that. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, I want you to know that Anytime you want to come to this hospital, you have access to every single room. You come to my office, I'll give you every badge you need. And you walk into every room. She goes, you have a place to stay tonight? I said, no, I hadn't even thought that far ahead yet. She goes, okay, I'm going to book you a hotel right now. And God just opens up these doors. Obedience is just... This is one of my favorite stories. Is there was this young kid shows up at my house. I got kicked out all, you know, I talked about last night. Most of the churches in Nashville were scared to death of me because everywhere I went, things began to happen. And so we started house meetings at our house. You know, we've had thousands of people walk through our house. We would have witches that would come into our house and all kinds of things and get delivered right on our floor. You know, with my kids holding puke buckets for them and everything else. Uh, when we had a church, we didn't have offering buckets. We had puke buckets. And we made it very clear, please do not put the offering in those buckets. Because we don't want to fish them out. <laughs> Many a times they had to say, can, can, can you rewrite that check? You put it in the wrong bucket. <laughs> and somebody forgot to clean out that bucket. 
And so we've had people come into our house all the time. And this young kid came and he was high functioning autism, very brilliant mind. But he would just kind of sit there in the corner, wouldn't say much. His dad called me. I've met his dad up at a church called The Loft that I helped plant years ago. And um, his dad called me and said, hey, my son, Jared's moving down to Nashville. And uh, I told him he should come visit your meetings. Has he been showing up? I said, yeah. He goes, so you, I don't have to explain Jared to you. And I said, no, I get it. And he goes, yeah, I just, uh, he just needs people to love him. I said, sure. So after the meeting, Jerry, we kind of just hide in a corner, you know, wouldn't talk to anybody until everybody left. His anxiety would die down a little bit. He'd come and ask me, what in the world just happened? You know, why was that person screaming? Why was that person rolling around the floor? Why did they have to carry that person? They looked dead. Why did they have to carry him to their car? You know, all the crazy stuff that would happen in our meetings. And, uh, and I'd talk to him about it. And then he would start telling me about every conspiracy theory the government had going on. You know, he said, can I have your email? I said, sure. I didn't know that would be 30 to 40 emails a day about every conspiracy theory that would happen. And I would receive hundreds a week on everything. And then one day, Jared just stopped showing up months down the road. His dad called me up. I was in Kentucky ministering and his dad said, hey, have you seen Jared? I said, nope. I haven't seen him for like a month and a half. I mean, that wasn't an uncommon thing. People would come and they would go and you just get used to that. And I said, I haven't seen Jared. He goes, I'm really scared. I haven't heard from him. Nobody knows where he is. I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, he was staying at his aunt's house. You know, he got all that conspiracy stuff was destroying him and making all this anxiety in his life. And so he started smoking marijuana to calm his nerves. I said, okay. She said, and he said, but his aunt found out that he was smoking weed in the house. So she kicked him out of the house. Nobody knows where Jared is. Nobody's heard from Jared. And so I said, okay. I said, well, let's pray that someone finds Jared. I said, you know, so I'm on the phone there in Kentucky. I said, Lord, just send somebody to Jared. Jared's important. And so we pray. I leave that. I leave Kentucky a few weeks later. I go to minister in Colorado Springs. So the whole family's jumping in the car. At that point, we have four kids. And so we jump in the car. We drive all the way out to Colorado Springs and I stay with a friend for two weeks. I minister there. I was doing a big, a big uh, meeting in front of the Capitol that I was speaking at there in Denver. We had a big stage up, preached there, ministered, prayed for people. And then after we were done, you know, we'd driven all the way out to Colorado and I had this urging in my spirit to go to Yellowstone. You know, some people had sewed into us. I said, you know, I told my wife, I said, look, I said, we're already here. What's another day's worth of driving, a day and a half's worth of driving to Yellowstone? So let's go to Yellowstone. She said, I, I would love the kids to see Yellowstone. I said, well, let's do it. So we jump in the car, we drive to Yellowstone. So the first day we drive all the way from Colorado Springs and we get all the way to Jackson Hole. And then we realized that Jackson Hole is very expensive. You had to take out a loan to see the McDonald's at Jackson Hole with four kids. Even McDonald's is expensive. So 
I realized we're not going to be able to find a hotel for us to all fit right here that's going to meet our missionary budget. And so, so it was too far to drive through Yellowstone to Bozeman, so we drive to Boise, Idaho. So we go through the Teton Pass, and we, we get all the way there. So I had driven a long day's worth of driving. I remember we had gotten through these beautiful fields of wheat in Idaho, and it's just beautiful when we smell something terrible and our toddler had a blowout. And there ain't nowhere to clean out a blowout from a toddler between the Tetons and Boise. <laughs> so we had to suffer through it. Here I am at the hotel using a hose pipe behind the hotel to clean out a car seat, and I'm hand scrubbing it in the bathtub with hotel soap and missionary life. <laughs> drape it over. My wife was like, was somebody going to steal that if you just drape it over the wire, the, the banister there in the hotel? I was like, nobody's going to steal that, baby. It's, it will be there when we wake up in the morning and pray it's dry. So we leave Boise. We start driving back to, to Jackson Hole. We get to Jackson Hole. We see the Tetons, and we drive through Yellowstone. We go to Old Faithful. We still haven't planned anything beyond that. And then it starts getting dark, and we're still in Yellowstone. I'm like, oh my goodness, it's like three and a half, four hour drive to Bozeman. I was like, we got to get out of here. You know, I, I, I've got a, a small four by six trailer on the back of my Explore driving through Yellowstone, which is cliffs and everything in the middle of the dark and trying to miss elk as they're moving through the streets. And so I've had 17 hours behind the wheel at this point. So I, I get out of I get out of Yellowstone. I'm heading to Bozeman, Montana, and it's like 1:30 at night now. And I find a, I get on Priceline. I find a hotel. I book a hotel. We get there. The, when you get to Bozeman, it's not a big city. And and there was like one gas station open next to the interstate. So I I, I get out, get the kids inside the hotel room. Now they're wired because they've been like in a car the whole day almost and so they're wired they want to run and they want to jump i want to crash so i crawl in bed and my wife i just leave her helplessly with the other kids and and she she comes over and she shakes me she's like babe we have a problem i was like what's what's the problem it's like 1 30 i just want to sleep she's like we have no milk and Elias is not going to bed without milk. I was like, oh no, <laughs> no, 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 no. She goes, I think there's a gas station. I was, so I get up, you know, my pajamas, put on some shoes, drive out to the one gas station that's open. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm just gonna get donuts and orange juice and everything that you can give a kid to buy sleep. So I, when, when they wake up in the morning, they'll just veg out and I'll sleep. And so I've got a handful of just groceries at the gas station, which you, you don't buy groceries at gas stations. You just buy anything with sugar because that's all they have. And I drop it off at the counter. I'm so out of it. And I realize I haven't even looked up at the moment. 
the guy at the register is just not scanning any of my stuff. And I'm like, why are, why, what's wrong with this guy? And so I look up, and when I look up, it's Jared. It's Jared from our house meetings back in Nashville that went missing. And Jared is shaking, trembling, tears coming down Jared's face. And Jared is like, how, Brent, how did you find me? I said, well, Jesus sent me here. He goes, no, 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 no. What, what do you mean Jesus sent? I said, I was in Colorado Springs ministering, and the Lord put it on my heart to take the family to Yellowstone. He goes, it's 2 o'clock in the morning in Bozeman, Montana. I'm at the only gas station. I wasn't supposed to be here tonight, but the guy canceled his shift. And they called me in. They said, you had to work tonight. He said, this is impossible. This is impossible. And he starts weeping and crying. And he goes, it can only be Jesus. Jesus is real. Jesus is real. And I'm suddenly realizing, wake up, wake up. It's ministry time. It's time to minister to Jared. And so I start ministering to this guy, and he gets saved right there in the gas station in Bozeman, Montana, at 2 o'clock in the morning. My wife, I get back to the hotel. She's like, what took you so long? I said, I was praying for the clerk. She goes, okay. I said, no, no, no. It was Jared. She goes, Jared who? She said, remember the guy that went missing four months ago? That the dad called that sent to the meeting Jared that would hide in the back. She goes, you are kidding me. I said, yeah. 2,200 miles away at 1.30 in the morning in Bozeman, Montana, God had me walk into a gas station and lead a highly functional autistic kid to Jesus because he loves him. Because Jared is important. That's how incredible of a father we have. You know, we can get so busy with things. I remember starting out in ministry, you know, you just wanted money to buy diapers because diapers are important. You don't want to not have diapers. You know, my wife wasn't the one to kind of clean out cloth diapers. I couldn't, we, I mentioned that once. She said, no, you get cloth, you're cleaning it. <laughs> you're cleaning it. And, and so there wasn't getting her. She loves doing the whole natural thing. But when it came to diapers, you're getting diapers. You're just doing that. And I remember she gave me one thing that day when I walked out the door to go sit at my coffee shop and just release heaven on earth. She gave me one thing. She said, you got $20. Don't eat. <laughs> just get diapers. Because <laughs> this is all the money we have at the moment. Get diapers. And, um, and so I go out there to the coffee shop there's the struggling country music artist. I mean, you know, I've, I've watched this guy struggle. You know, he was a worship leader, and now he's trying to make it in the country music. And, 
let's just be real. There's not a lot of African-American country music artists, you know, out there, man. There's, but he has a voice. He's good. And he can play a banjo. And he was like, I just, just need gas money. And I was like, Michael, I got $20. Here's my $20. And I'm thinking in the back of my head, that's for diapers. <laughs> but Michael needs gas money. And I'm, gas money is more important than diapers. It kind of eats the diapers. It's greater than. So I, I gave Michael my 20 And so I'm thinking in the back of my head, I'm preaching at this little church tonight. Somebody will give something, you know, and I can go buy diapers in the morning, make my wife happy. So I go and I preach at that meeting tonight, that night. Everybody was, I mean, it was powerful. Everybody got wrecked by Jesus. People just wandered in there to the meeting, just got saved because they felt the drawing of the spirit. I mean, it was powerful. We use this little old Episcopal church that's never closed their doors since the Civil War. It's always open. You can just walk in there. It has the largest collection of Tiffany stained glass on the windows. Just beautiful place. And we used it. We were never given permission, but it was always open. I needed a place to do ministry. So we just knew that there was a camera that was always watching us. One day a priest walks in, an Episcopal priest, and he pulls me to the side and he says, hey, we've been, we've been watching you. He's like, you have? He goes, yes, and we love what's going on. So here's how you control the lights. And if it gets hot, here's the air conditioning. I was like, oh, thank you. And he was like, yeah, 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 just keep going after it. And so... Everybody was so high on Holy Spirit that they were so heavenly minded. They weren't any earthly good. And nobody gave me $20 to buy diapers. <laughs> so they all left. And so I'm sitting out in my car and I'm like, man, I don't have 20, $20 to buy diapers. And I turn on my Explorer and I'm out of gas. I'm like, oh man, I gave Michael gas money and I needed gas money. So I'm, 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 I'm sitting there in my car, and I hear the Holy Spirit say, go to this gas station. I'm like, okay, here I go. I'm going to go to the gas station. Somebody's going to fill my car up. Well, it's a small town, Franklin, Tennessee, and there ain't nobody awake at that time. And so I go to the one gas station I know that's open that he told me to go to, and I, I sit there, and there's nobody except me and the clerk. Nobody's on the street. And I start getting a little frustrated. I'm like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get home? Because I'm on, I'm on red. I got the light on. I've got 18 miles to go. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I don't want to call my wife at 1 o'clock in the morning and tell her I spent the last 20, gave the 20 to Michael. She knows Michael. She wouldn't have proved of that. <laughs> she wouldn't have okayed that transaction there. So... I hear the Lord say, check your account. I'm like, did somebody give this money? And I don't know. I check my account. There's $3.40. This is during the Obama administration. So gas was $4.20 a gallon. I was like, oh, no. 
He said, put $3 in your tank. Well, if you put $3 in your tank, that means you have to go in and you have to prepay the $3. So I go in and I'm frustrated at this point. I was expecting somebody come give me a $100 bill, somebody to fill up my tank. And so I go in, I'm standing in front of the clerk. I said, I'm gonna prepay $3 on, on pump number four. <laughs> and I'm like, well, $3, get me home. I pay, I'm walking out the door, I hear the Holy Spirit say, turn around, preach the gospel. And I just keep walking. I get to the gas pump and he says, turn around, preach the gospel. And I'm frustrated. I'm filling up the tank with my $3, only takes me about 20 seconds. <laughs> I get in the car and halfway home, I realize I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it home. I'm not going to have to call my wife to come put gas in my car or wake up my dad or somebody. And I'm, and then it hits me. You asked me to preach the gospel and I didn't. Oh my goodness. I was so concerned if I was going to make it home that I didn't preach the gospel. So I go home that night, wake up in the morning. Sesson's like, do you get diapers? Nope. I gave the 20 to Michael. <laughs> and I have finished a job. It was my last job that I had done in the secular world because I had just stepped out. Didn't have anybody, any support, anything. I just, I told the Lord, I, I was praying for so many people that I just didn't have time to go. I had to choose. Pray for the woman with cancer. Go do, make more money here. I'm going to choose to pray for the woman with cancer and step out. And so this real estate agent hadn't paid me. She had held on for the last couple weeks and I kept on. And so I woke up and I was, I was a little frustrated. I was like, I don't even have money to, get, to go minister, to pray for anybody. We don't have money for diapers. The whole world's crashing down at me on me at 8 a.m. in the morning. You know, like, Lord, I've been serving you. Like, what's going on? And and I was supposed to, no, that wasn't the last job. It was the second to last job. That day was my last job. I was doing handyman stuff. I had laid down real estate agent, good paying job to, I was just doing handyman stuff because it gave me flexibility. And so that day was my last, but I couldn't even go do the job because I didn't have the money and all this other stuff to buy the materials. And so I was just having a pity party in the, in the bed. My wife comes, she goes, well, why don't you just ask God? for money. I said, you don't think I've done that? <laughs> she goes, you should ask him one more time. I said, Lord, I need money. And then all of a sudden I went ding on my phone. Look at my phone. You just received and it showed the amount from that real estate agent on PayPal. I was like, are you kidding me? She goes, look, told you, you just need to ask God. <laughs> I was like, ha ha. So I go, this is my last job. I was going to make really good money too on this job. And so it was going, I knew it'd kind of get me through the next few weeks of ministry. So I go and I do this job. And on the way home, the Lord says, stop by the gas station and buy a bottle of water. It was the same gas station that he had told me. So I'm thinking this is a redeeming moment. I get to go in there. I walk into the gas station. And guess what? It's the same clerk from the night before. And I'm like, oh my goodness, here it is. 
but it's 5 p.m. It's rush hour. That gas station is packed out with people. There's a line to get up to them. So I'm standing in line. I'm like, okay, I'm going to just, I don't care if everybody in the gas station hears me. I'm going to preach the gospel to this guy because you told me to last night. And I want to be obedient to what you told me to do. So here I am. I get up there to preach the gospel to him. He rings up my water. And he tells me, put your card in. I put my card in. And all of a sudden, his computer freezes up. So I'm thinking, yes, you're setting this up. Preach the gospel to this guy. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to reboot my computer. Something's going on here. I am so sorry about that. He starts hitting the key, trying to reset the computer. The computer's frozen, and he just keeps hitting it. And then all of a sudden, he starts punching it, and he starts punching the keyboard. He picks up the keyboard, starts hitting it against the counter, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. He goes, I hate this company. I hate my job. I hate my life. And the manager comes, grabs him, pulls him into a room, throws him in the room, and says, I am so sorry about that. And I'm just standing there like, what just happened? And I buy my water, and I walk out the door. And as I'm walking to my car, the Lord says, I told you to preach the gospel last night when nobody was there. And he was all alone. And I wept and I cried. He said, you were more concerned about the gas in your car than his life. And I wanted you to see the consequence of disobedience. <laughs> I just wept. I didn't have a chance to preach the gospel to him. We just think that voice is just optional. When he says, hey, go tell this person something. Well, you know, I just really don't have the time for it right now. I've got to go do this. Maybe tomorrow. Then we don't, we don't do what he says. We don't understand the importance of that moment. Remember, I just got back with, from ministering with Todd White and my buddy from Honduras. He said, can we have lunch? And I said, sure. So we went and had lunch. And he says, so, so tell me about this lifestyle power evangelism stuff. So I'm talking to him about it. He goes, do it right now. Just do it. Our waitress is coming. Do it. Do it. Give her a word. Do something. I was like put on the spot like I don't I don't know what to do she comes up and so my waitress looks at me and she's like trying to take my drink order and I just look up at her and the only thing that came to me was how long have you been saved so I said how long have you been saved all of a sudden she looks at me kind of puzzled she goes how did you know I was saved so the Lord told me you were he said to ask you how long you are she goes four years I said, he just really wants me to tell you he loves you. That's all I said. She walks away from the table. I don't really even see her. I don't think she even came back to our table. And my buddy goes, is that all? He goes, I, I thought maybe she would like fall out or, you know, cast the devil out of her, like something. That's all. I said, that's, that's all I got. That's all I got. 
And so we left and I'm like, give him my car. The next week he goes back to the restaurant. When she, when he walks in this waitress, a little small town we live in, she comes running over to him. She goes, where's your friend at? He goes, he's not with me. She goes, no, I need to see your friend. He goes, why? She goes, remember last week when, when he asked if I was saved and I said, yes. And he told me Jesus loves me. And when he told me Jesus loves me, I didn't come back to your table because I went into the officers or the, the manager's office and I just wept and cried because I could feel the love of God. She was like, I couldn't even, I had to get somebody else to do your table because I couldn't even look at you. She said, as soon as my shift was over, I hadn't talked with Jesus in a long time. She said, I got in my car, I drove to my house, I fell in my living room and started crying and I talked to Jesus for the first time in a long time. She said, and then something amazing happened. She said, I heard the doorbell ring. I went to the doorbell, wiping my tears. I go to the door and my children, my two kids were at the front door with their suitcases. My buddy's like, why, why were they with their suitcases? She goes, my husband had full custody over the children and I hadn't seen them in six months. And without a phone call, without anything, they were standing at my door with their suitcases. And my ex-husband was driving down the street and I have my kids back. Jesus loves me. All because the Lord said, tell her I love her. See what obedience does. Sometimes it's just not practical. Sometimes you're just hungry. You know, I had a couple from church. They wanted to sit, go out with my wife and I. And so we went to Chewy's and they have that crack dip. It's like white jalapeno ranch dip on my, dude, that stuff. We call it crack dip. And I've never had crack, but I'm assuming it was, it's as good as that dip right there. And so I'm just eating that chip. I'm like, the waitress keeps coming over. And she, I have this woman, Sharon, and her husband. Sharon is the most friendly evangelist I've ever met in my entire life. This woman hugs everyone. She's got this real soft voice, and she does voiceovers for cartoons and different things like that. And she's just like, I just want to tell you, Jesus loves you. And everywhere we go, Sharon has to tell everybody, Jesus loves them. And our waitress comes over to the table, and her husband isn't quite into all this stuff yet. And, and so our waitress, every time she would come to give us a drink, she would tell us a part of her story. She's just vomiting out everything. Like, here's your sweet tea. And oh, my gosh, like my mom moved into the house, and she's been like a complete nightmare, and it's just crazy, and all we do is scream, and my husband's like wanting to kick her out of the house, and okay, let me go get you some more chips, and so like she would do this like every time that she would come, and Sharon is just like, ah, she, she needs Jesus, like we've got to give her Jesus like right now, Brent, like give her Jesus, like go after it, like pray for her, so she's like comes and 
I'd ask for more chips than dip. And so I'm eating chips and Sharon's just like, okay, ma'am, can we pray for you? And like, as soon as she says that, like a wall just go, whoop. No, I'm, I'm good. And Sharon's like, but wait, you, know, like, you just told us like the hell in your life for like the last 40 minutes of everything that's wrong in your life. Are you sure we can't pray for you? Is there anything I can pray for you? And the woman's like, you can pray for world peace. I'm like, is this like Miss America all of a sudden? Like, who's just pray for world peace? Like, and so Sharon's like, okay, I'll pray for world peace. So Sharon's just looking for any opportunity to pray for this woman. So she's just like, I pray for world peace. And Lord, bring peace to the earth. And you did that through Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And so I just pray that she'll be touched with your peace. And so she keep, she's, she's going for it. No permission. She's just going for it. And this is like toward the end of COVID. So people had their mask on. She has her mask on. You just see her eyes and she is not entertained. She don't want none of this. And then Sharon looks at me in complete desperation. She's like this, Brent, do you have something? Brent, do you have something? And she's like, this is my pastor. He moves in things. <laughs> That's all she's Pray for her, Brent. <laughs> Help the situation. And I've got a chip that I've been eating during her prayer. I was like still eating chips the entire time she was praying. I was like, but it's so good. Like, I just need another chip. Sneak it in. And this woman just looks at me like, what are you going to do? And Sharon's like, Brent, Brent. My wife's kind of nudging me. Okay, Brent. And I said, Okay. And I closed my eyes, I opened them up, I looked at her, I said, I just saw your complete bone structure in your body. Like I was looking at an x-ray. I said, it's the third disc at the bottom is bulging. I said, I just saw a finger push it in. You're healed. And I grabbed the chip and ate it. <laughs> she didn't move. She just stood there. All of a sudden water starts forming in her eyes. She starts shaking. She goes, I just felt a hand go into my back and push my bulging disc in. I've been miserable for three months. What just happened? I said, God just healed you. And then I went back to eating chips. <laughs> she goes, she, this was amazing, but we're at Chewy's. She's like, are you, are you a prophet? Are you a prophet of God? <laughs> I'm like, a prophet of God? I was like, where did this? This went from like nothing to now you're a prophet of God. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm just a son. <laughs> and she starts looking around the restaurant. I just have my back healed. Like my bulging disc. She's telling everybody now. I just saw my, I just got healed. I said, yeah, Jesus healed you. Jesus healed you. Yeah, yeah. Ask some more chips, please. <laughs> Some more of that white crack dip, too. <laughs> like, you don't know how significant these moments are to people. It's just obedience. And I talked about it last night that we often want to flip the switch. I, I, I put it this way. I, the Lord convicted me beginning of this year. He said, you've turned me off. <laughs> 
I said, yeah, I did. He goes, why? I said, because it's overwhelming. You know what it's like to sit at a coffee house and know everybody's stuff? <laughs> to feel the weight of the Father's heart for every single person? It feels like you're going to die. It's so heavy. I, I, I put it this way. You know, I did all the stupid stuff when my dad wasn't in the room. When my dad walked in the room, guess what? All right, act good. Act right. Dad's here. When I was aware of dad, I wasn't going to do stupid. When my dad wasn't home, I didn't do a lot of stupid because I got, you know, I, I didn't go through a lot of things in life. I didn't, I didn't know what marijuana smelled like until I was like in my 30s. <laughs> like I just was un, so unaware of everything in this life. Like there was just a form of innocence that I was just, Jesus grabbed a hold of me, you know, but you know, I remember being at the comic store and I saw that guy that had his bicycle tires on his motorcycle were on fire. And I thought, man, that looks so cool. So, so that night, me and my cousins, we snuck into the backfield and we soaked my bicycle tires in kerosene. And it was dark outside. I mean, if we had had YouTube, we would have been famous, you know. And I lit them on fire and I rode through the field with fire on my tires. The problem was my dad cut hay about three days earlier and had been turning it, caught the field on fire. It was a late, late cutting in the fall, so it was really dry. Started catching the woods on fire. Used my new backpack for school to get the fire out. Dad walks in the back and he's like, why do you not have tires on your bike? And why was the field on fire? See, I did all my stupid stuff when dad wasn't around. <laughs> Jumping off things. But when my dad was in the room, I acted different. And same thing with the father. It's the awareness of his thereness. Now, when I become aware of him, I have a responsibility. Sometimes we don't like being aware of the father because we don't want to carry the responsibility. Because that responsibility never turns off. It's a river. You don't get to judge where the river goes, where it flows, how quickly it flows. You just jump in the river and let the current take you. Sometimes that can get overwhelming, but the more you step into it, the more you have a grace for it. See, the grace is knowing the pleasure of the Lord that comes through obedience. That's what Paul says, for I long to know the pleasure of the Lord. See, we, yes, I'm pleasing to the Lord through Christ Jesus, but there's a pleasure that comes through obedience that's different. To physically and tangibly know the pleasure of the Lord. Last night when I was all done, everything happened. I don't need a check. I don't need anything. I walk over to the corner and I hear the Father say, I am so pleased with you. I love you. And that was everything I needed in that moment. I don't need anybody. I don't need somebody told me the other day, you are one video from being viral. I was like, I've been viral once. Don't take a video then. Guy came to me, so I can put you on the biggest stages of the world. I said, I don't want a stage. I just want to be obedient. What is he saying? What is that voice saying? And then living that day, 
What does that look like to know the voice? I remember I got out of a prayer meeting. I was so pumped up. I was so excited. I was like, oh, we had a meeting at 6 a.m. in the morning. We prayed. We, we shout. We scream. We proclaimed. We worshiped with some leaders. And I get out of the meeting. And I said, you tell me where to go. I'll win 10 souls. Tell me the street corner of Jesus. I'll win 10 souls for you right now. And then all of a sudden, I hear the Father speak. He says, go home and let your wife do anything she wants to do and watch the kids and play with your kids. He says, I find that more important than you winning a thousand souls. And I was caught off guard. I was like, are you serious? He goes, yes. So I drove home and I told Cessna, I said, go do anything you want to do. She goes, seriously? I said, yeah, if you want to just go sit in a coffee shop and read a book, go do it. I've got it. I've got the kids all day. Why? I thought you were going to go preach. And he told me to come home. You know, people ask, how does your wife not get stressed with you on the road and seven kids? Because she knows I'll lay it all down in a second. She knows I won't. I will come home in a second. It's like I was doing revival meetings last month. I told the story to some of the people last night. And the leader of it said in Germany, he said, what if revival breaks out? What are you going to do? Are you going to preach the, the next night? I said, i got a flight in the morning. He goes, no, no, no. I'll, I'll get you a new flight. What if revival breaks out? I said, I'm going home. He says, seriously? Like if revival breaks out, you're going home? I said, yeah, I'm jumping on a flight. I'm going home. He goes, what if I pay for your whole family to move to Germany for a month? revival breaks. I'll pay for all of them to move. I'll get you a car. I'll make sure you're taken care of. He's a businessman. He's got lots of money. He said, I'll do it. And I said, I would still go home. He says, if revival breaks out like Asbury, you'll just go home. I said, yep. Because that, that doesn't fascinate me. Revival, all that stuff. Revival is a threshing floor. You know what revival is? Repentance. Deep deep heart repentance such repentance that we become so aware of God that's what revival is revival is not the finish line it's the it's the starting gate it's the starting gate we're so dead that we're excited when revival happens because it looks like we have breath and a heartbeat Hebrews chapter 6, let us therefore move on from the elementary principles, not again laying down the foundations of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, repentance from a resurrection from the dead, and judgment after death. Paul says, let us move forward. Not again laying the elementary principles, the basic foundations of repentance from dead works. In other words, quit playing with dead things. Quit playing with dead things. You're not called to play with dead things. Most of the church is playing with dead things. Most of the church are still stuck in the very basic elementary principle of repentance from dead works. But now we got all these schools of ministry. Oh man, we got schools of ministry and schools of supernatural and all the things that Paul says, I do not speak of these things to you. 
That's what he said in Corinthians. For I long to give you meat. But he says, in the body or the body, I could not tell. I was man. He didn't even say himself. Was called into the third heaven and saw unspeakable things. Words that shouldn't even be uttered among you. Corinth, the most charismatic church. The ones when you gather together, you always have a word. You always have a testimony. You always have a prophecy. You always speak in tongues. I mean, you are the most gifted church of them all. But it's commonly reported, commonly spoke about that a man has taken his father's wife. And you being puffed up with grace haven't mourned it. That he that has done this will be cast away from you. Why? You're so charismatic that you allow people to play with dead things. And because of this reason right here, I can't speak of the spiritual things. The meat, the substance. Why? Because I can only give you the milk. Repent. Repent. Because if I talk to you about ascending into heaven, which us, all us charismatics, we love talking about our throne room encounters. Paul says, I can't even speak it among you. Why? Because you'll seek after that instead of repentance. You'll get so into the supernatural that you'll forget to walk out the natural. To let the flesh die. To crucify it like Christ. To walk out holiness and righteousness. And you'll write books about prophecy and going up into heaven and seeing unspeakable things. And you will make that the focus. And you will preach identity in such a way that people think that they're entitled to move in the gifts of God. Dan, Dan Muller asked me one time, we were up late one night in Florida, and he said, what are you preaching? I said, identity without lordship is entitlement. He goes, oh, man. I said, yeah. If we don't understand, it's all about lordship. Jesus. I mean, look, look at Romans. How does Paul talk in Romans? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything is about kingship, 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 kingship. He ain't talking about brother. He ain't talking about brother Jesus. Goodness, Jude, the very brother of Jesus, even refused to call him his brother. He said, I am the brother of James, the brother of Christ, and I am a servant, a bondservant of Jesus. Because he remembered in John chapter 4 when he tried to get his brother killed. <laughs> when James, the great, James the Great wasn't the brother of John. James the Great was the brother of Jesus. James the Great is the one that Paul was talking to when Paul came to Jerusalem. James the Lesser, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. He was the one that was killed by the sword by Herod when, Paul, when Peter was taken captive. 
these two, James and Jude, were like, oh my goodness, we don't even have, I don't even want to put our, say I'm about the family of Jesus. But we talk so casually about who Jesus is. But this name had so much authority, had so much power, that they wouldn't even name they wouldn't even write the name of Yeshua on a piece of paper. At least it was crumbled up and thrown on the ground. People ask, how, oh, man, that name carried so much power because they believed the name carried so much power. We just so casually say it in conversation. Yeah, the other day, like, Jesus was, like, talking to me, and, like, it was amazing, and then he just, like, stroked my hair. You ain't going to hear that from Paul. Like I was like on the road to Damascus, and a voice spoke and said, "Why are you persecuting my church?" And I fell on the ground as though I was dying. Fear went through my body. I am a bond servant, a slave to righteousness. If I preach this gospel of my own will, I have no reward. I preach it because I have to, because I'm a slave to it. I don't go to Jerusalem to be bound hand and feet. I go to die for Christ if I must. We take his name, as Tozer said, and we pull it down from its throne and we cast it in gold and make it in our image and we make it acceptable and we make it personal and all this other stuff. But it's enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. It's lordship, it's kingship. Yes, love. He loves us. And yes, we can have this personal, amazing relationship with him. But if you don't know his love. I had a bunch of pastors got mad at me one time because I made the comment. I said, Jesus is not the friend of sinners. They got mad at me. What do you mean he's not the friend of sinners? It says so. I said, well, if we read it in the context of what it said, it's the Pharisees, not the disciples. And the Pharisees are mocking Jesus, and they said, he's a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. I said, so to believe that Jesus is a friend of sinners, you have to believe he's a glutton and a drunkard. And they were furious. No, he's the friend of sinners. And I pointed to John chapter 16. If my word and commands abide in you, I call you friend. Ooh. He told that to his disciples. Because my word and my commands are inside of you. I call you my friend. James says that because of Abraham's obedience, he was called a friend of God. Lordship. Identity apart from the Lordship. 
of Jesus Christ creates an entitlement within people that they'll write songs about how much he loves them and how important they are. And the focus becomes pop psychology to try to warm our hearts instead of the raw obedience of he ripped me from hell and brought me into his glorious light. Let's get real sober about this message. I was talking about how I tried to get smuggled into the Congo and all this other stuff and, and how people came to try to kill me. Muslims chased me around a village. My wife had nightmares before I went on that trip. She had nightmares. She goes, I just keep having this reoccurring nightmare that you're just drug out into the streets and you're killed on this trip. And she goes, I don't, I don't think you should go. And I said, I have to. She goes, why? I said, because I have to figure, I have to test, am I willing to die for this? This gospel in America where I can sit down in a coffee shop. Listen, I live in Franklin, Tennessee. You go to a coffee shop, you pump gas at the gas station and Jesus culture's on them in the background. Kim Walker Smith is on in the background as I'm pumping gas. Show me your glory, God. I'm like, where am I at? My county just got rated the number one evangelical county in the country. 89% of the people that live in my county are Christians. I go to a coffee shop. If I wear an Ask Me About Jesus shirt, I'm in trouble that entire day. Just since I, my Ask Me for Prayer, I forgot I put it on one day. I stopped wearing them. I put it on one day to go work out. I, an old man got off the weightlifting machine. He was on his way over. <laughs> I need prayer. Can you pray for me? I was like, oh, I just thought I was really anointed. <laughs> I, thought, I forgot I put the black shirt on and asked me for prayer. I just thought, man, goodness, I just walk in this place. People start running over. I'm, I got that Smith Wigglesworth anointing today. <laughs> no, just had the shirt on. But there's days I don't. I, last year I told my wife, I'm going to go to Starbucks on Five Points in downtown Franklin. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to read to spend some time with the Lord. She goes, oh, that, that sounds nice. Maybe, maybe I should get a babysitter and go to the coffee shop for eight hours and read about the Lord. <laughs> she calls me about six hours later, and she goes, so how's your coffee shop time going? I didn't wear a shirt. Well, I had a shirt on. I wasn't like shirtless. I had a shirt on, but not a Christian shirt. 13 people stopped at my table. She asked me, she goes, 13 people, it still happens? I said, oh, it happens all the time. The person just comes and sits at my table. I don't know this person. She looks at me and she goes, do you have the word of God for my life? I said, sit down. This just happened last year. People coming over, can I, can I just ask you for prayer? That's just a, a normal day. I, I have my sign. I just asked me for prayer sign. I grabbed it out of my car one day. I went downtown Franklin. I just stood on the corner with my ask me for prayer sign. I just didn't say anything. People just come and they ask for prayer. 
This guy walks by and he goes, man, I like your sign. Walks off. 20 minutes later, he walks back. He goes, um, wait, are you Brett Kelly? I was like, yeah. He goes, you don't know me. I'm from Indiana. Um, my wife and I are just here to visit for the weekend. We just wanted to get away trip. So we came here and, uh, this is going to sound really weird, but I was on Facebook last night and I found a bunch of your videos on Facebook and started watching them. And I pulled my wife over. And so as we walked by and I saw the sign, I, I, I thought maybe that was you. And I grabbed my wife and said, I got to go back and ask if that's Brent Kelly. And he goes, would, would you pray for me? I said, absolutely. Come Holy Spirit. And he fell out in the street. I had to pull him out of the street. You know, he don't want to get hit by cars. You know, there's no catcher, no nothing. Just right there in the middle of the street. So you go to another country like Denmark and Germany and Europe, and then you come home and you're at the, <laughs> you're just walking through the airport and there's Christian music artists and hey, how you doing? There's newsboys, yeah, right there. And you're just walking through and you go to your coffee shop and you hear your Christian music at the gas station. You feel like you're in a whole different, like I just arrived in heaven for the day. But then we have this whole culture that's being birthed of entitlement. Everybody's just walking on the street, tapping people on the back. Hey, I just want to tell you, you're just a child of God and Jesus loves you. Never brings the gospel. Never puts a line in front of them. Never draws a line in the sand. Never brings conviction. And you have people just walking around thinking they're children of God and they're really not. They don't serve God. They aren't friends with God. I have no relationship with God because my you obey my commands and they're in you. I call you my friend. Obedience is not optional. What's what what are what are the commands? And I'll end with this. What are the commands? Otherwise I'll just preach till tonight and get another room at the Paca Ranch. <laughs> what are the commands of Christ? Love. Love. What does that look like? Because he loves me, I'll have no other gods before him. Because he loves me, I'll not create any graven image. Because he loves me, I'll worship the Lord my God. Because he loves me, the Sabbath and keep it holy because I love my parents I'll honor them because I love my neighbor I will not steal from them because I love my neighbor I will not commit adultery because I love my neighbor I will not covet because I love my neighbor I will not lie love fulfills the law but most people never know what love is. They don't know what love is. Their idea is so humanistic. God cannot receive what is not his own. Meaning this, he can't receive a humanistic love. The only way you can love God is to first receive love before you can exchange it and offer it up.
most people lust. If it's, if love, here's the difference between lust and love. If it doesn't cost you something, it's not love. That's just the reality. David wanted to offer and build an altar to God to thank him for saving him. And the owner of the land came and said, I'll give it to you. He says, no, I will not offer something to God that does not cost me something. Love costs you something. Lust doesn't cost you a thing. And if we don't understand how to receive that love, I say it like this, Peter denies Christ. Jesus raises from the dead, meets Peter on the shore. Peter's on the fishing boat, cast to the other side. Peter does, he pulls in the massive amount of fish. And then all of a sudden it clicks, wait, this has happened before. Oh my goodness, it's Rabbi. It's Raboni. And he jumps off the ship, he swims to the shore gets to the shore, what does he do? He runs up to the feet of Jesus, falls on his face and says, starts crying, starts weeping because why? He's, he's denied Jesus. And all this condemnation and guilt is inside of his heart. The dark night of the soul. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks down and he says the very thing that Peter was absolutely terrified of Jesus ever saying. Do you love me, Peter? Peter says, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? (laughs) Yeah, I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, yes, I love you. That's the English translation. Now let me give you the Greek. Do you agape me, Peter? I phileo you. Do you agape me, Peter? I phileo you. Do you phileo me, Peter? I phileo you. That sounds different. Our translation just says, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Those are two separate words, Peter, that's being used in that Aramaic Greek. It's meaning this. Peter, do you love me like the Father loves me? (laughs) You know I can't love you that way. I love you like a brother. Hey, Peter, do you love me the way the Father loves me? I can't love you that way, Jesus. I can't. Peter, do you love me like a brother? I love you like a brother. See, Peter could not love God or love Jesus the way that God loved Jesus because Peter did not know the love of the Father yet. That's just the reality. All of Israel's idea of who God was was this Zeus theology. The moment we disappoint God, he'll zap us with lightning. This is the very thought that Job had. Oh, I'm not going to get into Job being the most righteous man and all that. 
But when they came and they told Job, fire from heaven came down. His thoughts about God changed at that moment. God didn't send fire. The prince of this world, the God of this world did. But in that moment, Peter could not love Jesus the way the Father loved Jesus because he didn't know the love of the Father. It wasn't until 40 days later, Pentecost came. That, Jesus, that when Jesus sat on that throne and released the Holy Spirit, the helper, to come, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, did he truly know the love of the Father? Romans chapter 5. For the love of God comes through the Holy Spirit. We can only know the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Can't know it intellectually. See, phileo love is a transaction. If you love me, I'll love you. <laughs> it's, it's this transaction. You can't have this transaction. It is only, the, the agape love is unconditional. It is a breath. It is. How many of you know that God breathed and never stopped breathing? He didn't, he didn't go to Adam and go and suck the air back out of Adam's lungs. Why? Because then that would be a transaction. He breathed into Adam and he did not inhale back. Because here's the reality. God doesn't need your love. God, how many of you have you ever heard parents say, maybe your own parents said it, you just broke God's heart. I've heard people say that before. Using that to kind of manipulate and control and all this stuff. And people get the idea that I can break God's heart. You can't break God's heart. He's not some fragile being sitting up there. He's not, he's not Zeus making clay figurines and the moment he doesn't receive enough worship, he crashes it down on the ground, breaks it into pieces. His love is not a transaction, it's a breath. It's, it's one direction. It's unconditional. Nothing can separate you from this love. Life nor death, even hell itself is not the separation from the presence of God. I'll mess some theology up. David said, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. Where can I go to escape your presence? I thought hell was the separation of, the, of God. What do you mean that, that I can know his presence in hell? nor life, nor death, nor any creature will ever separate you from the love of God. See, the very fires of hell oh, is the presence of God. God can't create anything apart from himself. <laughs> it's not like he puts hell on the other side of the universe. Let's, let's put it as far as we possibly can in a, in a black hole. Galaxies and galaxies way. Galaxies. 
and then they can't feel the warmth of my presence. No, God cannot create anything apart from himself. The moment you got saved, heaven is now. It's not heaven come down, it's heaven come out. <laughs> Heaven's now. But here's the deal, there's people out in these streets, there's people in these homes right now that are living in hell. Yeah, hell, hell's a, a real place, the same way heaven's a real place. But hell's a real place too. But here's the deal. People outside are living in hell at this moment. Because eternal separation isn't a location. It's a position of the heart. See, that's what we don't understand. It's a position of the heart. Caiaphas was eternally separated. Jesus said, if you don't know who I am, then you don't know who he is. Meaning you have no clue. You are not conscious of him. You are not living in the reality of him. You are completely blind to who he is. The perfect manifest presence of God was standing in front of Caiaphas. And he grit his teeth and he said, let's kill it. <laughs> Boy, that's hell. That's hell right there. It's not a distance. It's not a location. It's a position of the heart. People are living in hell all out here, right now. See, we have this idea that people in hell are gonna be like, oh, I wanna, oh, get me to heaven, get me to heaven. Oh, oh I regret this, I wanna get to heaven. <laughs> no, it says the Lamb of God presents himself with his angels, but yet they worship the beast. They're so deceived. They're so prideful. They're so arrogant. They're so deceived in their hearts. They're so blinded by the prince of this world that blinds the hearts of the men. At least they see the glorious light of the gospel. And they love darkness way more than they love light. See, when Jesus died on the cross, every tomb over every grave rolled away. No one is chained in darkness right now. Meaning this, that sin doesn't, doesn't matter how strong the sin is. Doesn't matter if they're demon possessed with thousands of demons. No one is so controlled by sin that they do not have the choice. See, when he took all the sin of the world upon the cross, he gave everyone the power to choose. No one goes to hell without the ability to choose. See, prior to him dying on the cross, they were slaves to a nature. But Jesus says that the condemnation of this world is that men love darkness more than light. So they hide in darkness, least their sins, the arrogance and the pride of their own life would expose that they are wrong, so they would rather hide in darkness. So picture this, the tombs are open. Lazarus, no man comes to the Father except the Spirit draws him. Lazarus, come forth. This is a picture of salvation right now. Roll away the stone. The, the stone. His death rolled away the stone. The Spirit calls forth Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus had the choice to stay in that tomb in darkness. Death couldn't hold him. 
death couldn't hold him, but he stayed. He, he didn't stay in darkness. He came out. But how did he come out? Oh, he was bound. See, many believers, they come out of the darkness, but they're still bound. <laughs> He's walking like a mummy. He's wrapped tight. He smells like death. But underneath all those grave clothes, that those soiled grave clothes, he's been dead for four days. The, the body fluids have drenched those clothes. He smells bad. He looks bad. But underneath there is a brand new person. Brand new person. And he wobbles out. Jesus looks at his disciples, Peter, James, John, get over here. Remove the grave clothes, the things binding him, the ways of thinking, the demonic oppression, possession of the enemy. Remove it. See, this is the process of salvation right here. Nothing in hell had the ability to keep Lazarus in that tomb except his own choice. No one's so deceived that they can't see Jesus. We need to get our gospel correct. People go to hell not because of their sins, because they reject the blood and they love their own life. Oh man, it's such a good gospel.